Hey, I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center saxophonist Daryl Dixon, whose impressive body of work includes recording and playing with Parliament and P-Funk spinoffs Quasar and Mutiny, classic Sugar Hill rap records, forming the long-running Chops Horn section, several BET specials, and a long list of studio credits. Other big names he has blown his horn for include Patrice Russian, Paul Jackson Jr., who was just recently on this show, Alicia Keys, Mariah Carey, Christina Aguilera, Stevie Wonder, The OJs, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and The Police. And it is Dixon's sax solo that soars so prominently on one of the biggest funk tracks of all time, Parliament's Flashlight. Daryl, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good. Excellent. So glad to have you. Good to be here. <laughs> and where is here today for you? Uh, here is, uh, well, I'm in Rawway, New Jersey. That's where I live. And um, I've lived here, well, I've lived here since I was four, actually. The only time I didn't live here was uh, uh, a year I spent in, in L.A. After, uh, after graduating college as a music major. Uh, I went to L.A. and I was, uh, I was a copyist and I did lead sheets for A&M and Motown Records. And I lived in L.A. for a year. And I, I um, matter of fact, I, came, I, I, I moved back east here uh, right after, after, right after joining uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Because I, I didn't have to live in L.A. to be in Parliament Funkadelic. I could, I could live anywhere. So, so that's, that's where I am now, Rawway, New Jersey. Where is that in relation to some of the bigger cities? Uh, it's about 12 miles south of Newark, and it's about uh, maybe almost 15 miles south of New York City. Okay, well, very conveniently located then to get right to the action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And airports and all that good stuff. Yeah. All right, ready to dive in and go down memory, memory lane a little bit? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so you gave us a little background already of, you know, where you also lived and all that. But tell us a little bit more of your, your uh, upbringing in terms of music. You know, when did you first get into music? Did you have a musical family, parents, siblings, uh, relatives, whatever? And how did you gravitate towards the saxophone? Uh, well, uh, I, started, I started playing when I was eight, when I was eight years old. And uh, my, father, uh, my father was a tap dancer. And um, so he had... Uh, and, you know, he was a lover of jazz, still is. And so he had all kinds of jazz records from Duke Ellington to, you know, Lee Morgan, Gene Ammons, uh, you name it, Coleman Hawkins, John Lionel Hampton, whoever. And uh, that's the first, that's the very first music that, that I really listened to before listening to pop and all that stuff. Uh, and I, I really got, that, that music really got my ears in shape. You know, so so, you know, I started when I started playing uh, saxophone, I, I got interested in saxophone because uh, we were at a friend of my father's house. And in his basement, he had an old saxophone that, you know, he didn't play anymore, but it was just sitting there. So uh, my brother and I were in the basement playing and, you know, I had seen saxophones, you know, on TV and whatnot. And, you know, I was acting like I was playing and I was I was having fun, just just messing around with the instrument. And then. You know, on the way home that night, I told my father, I said, you know, I want to learn to play saxophone, you know. So, so you know, he rented, you know, rented a saxophone for me. I was in the third grade at the time. Rented a saxophone for me. And um, I started taking lessons. Uh, and that's when it started, you know. And I was took lessons through grammar school. You know, in high school, I was in the band and all of that, marching band and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, when I was like, when I was like about 11 years old, I, 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 that's when I realized that people actually made a living doing this, you know. And so I said, okay, well, this is this this is what I this is what I want to do, you know. So that's how that's how I got interested in the saxophone, uh, and uh, I just been uh, going ever since. Ever, ever since. And then a year later, I started playing drums uh, because I'm a drummer also, you know. Um, and I'm not a beginning drummer. I'm an accomplished drummer, you know. I've been you know, I have my own drums and all that stuff. Uh, and that's something a lot of people don't know about me because I'm, I'm known as a saxophone player. Many people don't know that I play drums also. Uh, so, 
that's um, you know, that's how my whole musical thing started. You know, started. You know. Did you get any drum opportunities in the marching band or just the sax? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I, for one year, I played the the band director. He let me play drums. Uh, you know, for one year. You know, and um, and I, I, I enjoyed it, and and I'm, I'm glad that he gave me the opportunity because my, my band director, uh, Ron Dole, who I'm still in contact with. You know, he's he's helped he's helped me a lot as far as allowing me to do whatever I felt expressed me. You know, you know, and so he's been uh, he's been like re really helpful with uh, with my whole attitude. With my whole attitude, like coming through high school, my whole attitude toward toward music and be and the idea of being able to do whatever I wanted to do musically. So, and how did the sax maybe inform the drumming a little bit, and the drumming inform the sax playing a little bit? Well, um, it, it's it's funny, it, you know. I I really never thought of it in terms of that, but uh, neither one really fed the other. You know, uh, except that, you know, I mean, I'd always been interested. I'd always been interested in rhythm, uh, even even before playing the saxophone, uh, because listening to my father's jazz records and listening to, you know, what the drums did in there and just listening to the overall, uh, just the, the overall rhythm of, 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 of the instruments. I mean, I when um, Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington's music was the most influential with me as far as my arranging, as far as doing my uh, uh, the arranging part of my career is because just listening to his harmonies and listening to how everything fit rhythmically, how all the instruments, the saxes and the trumpets and all that, how they fit rhythmically. Um, you know, Ellington's music was was the most influ was the most influential in that way, but. Um, but you know, rhythm-wise, I, I I was always a fan of rhythm even before the saxophone, and I started playing the saxophone. And then, like I said, a year later, you know, I started playing drums mainly because one of my best friends that I you know I went to school with had a drum set. I didn't have a drum set at the time, but I loved you know drums and rhythm. And my best friend he had his a drum set, and so I, I was over his house all the time. So he and and he played drums. Yeah, he was a drummer. And so, you know, that was my that was my opportunity to sit down at a set and just start working things out, you know. So, so you know. And, um, did you play any other saxophones like alto, uh, soprano, or? Um, yeah, tenor? yeah, I play I play mostly. Well, alto is my main instrument. Uh, I play mostly soprano. I play tenor too, not as much. Um, and. Um, I mean, those are the, those those are the three instruments that I own and and actively play. It's tenor, alto, soprano. Um, so you know that's that's where my forte lies. My forte lies with alto, really, but uh, with alto and soprano. What were some of the uh, sax heroes or idols that you began to look up to? Um, well, uh, early on. Uh, just before and during my early sax, early sax development, it was uh, Coleman. It was Coleman Hawkins, Gene Ammons, uh, Lockjaw Davis, um, uh, Johnny Hodges. Um, those 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 are the ones that I heard the most. And I mean, there were other other ones, other lesser known ones. You know, guys like uh, you know Richie Kamuka and. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, and, well, you know, of course, Lester Young, even though he he wasn't lesser known, but I'm just saying, um, those early sax players were the ones that I, were the ones that I really listened to at, at at first. That got me really hyped up on 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 the instrument itself. You know, as a matter of fact, I had when I started playing and I tried to emulate these guys, and you know, I didn't know what I was doing, so I, I wanted to I wanted to play the same way that they did, and when I played, when I when I played, and I and I wasn't hearing the same things out of my horn that I was out of their horn, you know, I I quit. I quit for a year. But I said, I'll never get this. I'll never get this. You know, but I was a kid. You know, so you know, what do you know? You know, so <laughs> so you know, so I quit for you. But then I came back to it. 
you know, because, you know, I really enjoyed it, you know, so I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't want to stop, but, um, you know, uh, but those, those, those early sax players were, were instrumental in my, uh, in my first initial upbringing, you know, and then as, as I went along and I heard other sax players, you know, I, you know, I liked, you know, I liked the things that they did, you know. Do you remember uh, the first time you saw a performer on stage playing sax? It kind of blew your doors off or, you know. Yeah, yeah, I did. The first time I saw a sax player live was um, I was about I was about 11, 12 years old. And um, my father had taken my brother and I uh, and my brother's a drummer, too. Both of my brothers are drummers. But anyway, my father had taken my my brother and I to see. James Brown at the Apollo Theater, and um, and of course you know I was a you know I was a James Brown fan you know, and uh, Maceo Parker was the first saxophone player that I saw live when he was with James Brown. This is when he was peaking, like back you know back in the '60s, you know, wow. and um, you know and you know Maceo uh, was the first contemporary saxophone player that impressed me because of the fact that Maceo was the kind of sax player that he could play during his entire solo. He'll play only maybe four notes, but he brings the house down every time with just those four notes. He doesn't have to play a lot, but it, it, it's, it's when I realized that it's, it's how you play what you play. It's not, it's not about a whole bunch of notes. It's about how you play what you play and how you impact the feelings of the people that you're playing to with just those couple of notes. And he was the first sax player and the only sax player that that, that I saw that, that could do that. Well, he was the first one because the other sax players that I mentioned before, Gene Ammons and the jazz saxophone players, you know, they play a lot of they play a lot of notes and and you know and and, and I mean I loved it and there's nothing wrong with, with that because I mean I do the same thing. But Maceo was the first one that I saw that I could take just four notes and tear it up. You know, so, so that's, you know, so he was he was the first one I actually saw in person, you know, perform. Wow. James was probably like, you don't need more than four notes. Just go with that. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. You're right. Yeah. Was uh, Fred with him then, too, or just uh, Macy at that time? Uh, no, Fred was no. Fred hadn't joined up at that time. Fred wasn't with him. Because that was like really early before Fred, but um, yeah, at that time Fred had uh, he had his main his main trombone player was a guy named Strawberry, and I I don't know what his real name was I don't know but you know James Brown would always call Strawberry you know when it, whenever when there was a trombone solo it would be Strawberry like I said but he like said I don't know what his real name was was Pee Wee there at that time uh, oh yeah yep Pee Wee Ellis yeah he was yep. in there. Wow, that must have really blown an eleven-year-old's mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, aside from the sax, I mean, the entire show, James's entire show. You know, I mean, I really feel sorry for people. You know, for younger kids now, younger people nowadays that never saw James Brown live back then. It, it was, you know, it's unbelievable. No, you know, nobody was doing what he was doing. Nobody. You know. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, Darrell, when did you uh, first start to get into your own groups and trying to do your own thing? Um, well, uh, well, I, I guess it started when uh, when I formed the horn section. You know, because I had um, um, I, okay, uh, Chops was uh, Chops was formed when. Uh, when we had d done uh, Mutiny, when we had done the, uh, the first Mutiny album with, with Jerome Brelli, after we all, after me, Glenn Goins, and Jerome, we all left P-Funk at the same time. So are we jumping ahead a bit? Because I was uh, hoping I would stay with, like, your late teens, early adulthood. Uh, oh, well, you, well, I, oh, I thought you meant as far as doing my own thing, like... I meant playing outside of, um, you know, the school band or something like oh, that. Oh, oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that started when I was uh, 14. 
you know, I started when I was 14. I started playing uh, what they call the chitlin circuit around here, playing in, uh, you know, playing in the bars and stuff in 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 Newark and uh, and like in New York. Um, because that's that's the first when I was 14. That's when I joined my first band, and the first band, you know, playing out. Uh, and that's when I started, I was playing professionally and I really, and you know, and, and, and I remember the first time that I, that I played, I played three nights in a row in a club because at that time I felt, I felt like I had arrived because, you know, cause that's what, that's what, you know, jazz musicians did. They played like several nights in a row and they got paid for it, you know, and it's like, you know, and, and that's that's the first time I felt like professional, like 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 one of those guys that I like the Coleman Hawkins and and the Charlie Parkers. You know, I felt like them. You know, it was it was it was really exciting to me. At that, you know, because that you know it's the first time I had ever ever got paid for playing. You know, playing in those clubs, um, and at that at that time, you know, in Newark and the surrounding area. They had a lot. They had a lot of you know jazz clubs, the Key Club, the Golden Slipper, the Sparky Jays. They had all these clubs where where you could play, and there were a lot of bands around. You know, uh, unlike today, a lot you know a lot of you know those places are gone, and you know there's really not a lot of places that bands can play. And the places that they do play, and they have to kind of it's like a pay to play thing, you know. But but um, at that age, you know, I learned a lot. You know, I you know I, I just learned a lot about about playing, about my attitude toward playing, and uh, and and just about people in in general. And and I guess that that's why I you know I never smoked or drank. Um, you know, because I mean I'm I'm looking at these people in the club. You know, they're you know they're you know they they're drunk, they're getting sick, they're throwing up all over the place. And I said, how is that? You know, how I mean. How is that enjoyable? I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand all that. So uh, you know, and to this day, I don't. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I never did any any kind of any kind of drug situation or anything like that. I you know I I don't touch like I you know I don't even drink champagne, beer, uh, nothing nothing like that. So so that was so fourteen was when I broke out. You know. Wow. You know, well, that, 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 that sounds like it beats a paper route or working at the grocery store. Or... Yeah, because I, I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't need an after-school job because I and and I, I had more money. I mean, I was making at that time. I was making. Uh, I was making what, like sixty dollars, sixty dollars a night, playing, and for a high school kid, that's great, you know. And uh, and, and and but you know, I, I spent a lot of my money not on clothes. I was never a fashion guy, but. You know, I, I spent it on, on on an obscure hobby, <laughs> actually, uh, that had actually nothing to do with music. You know, it was a I collected I collected old movies. You know, Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy. You know, Harold Lloyd. You know, I collected because I was a and projectors. I was for some reason I was like fascinated with movie projectors, so I collected movie projectors and 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 and, and old movies and silent films and and that kind of thing. It was, it was a hobby of mine that I, you know, um, but I, I, it was, you know, for a musician, I guess it's kind of a strange hobby, you know, so, but anyway, um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't need any after school jobs or anything. Cause I, I, you know, I was making $60 a night playing and, you know, nice. And you were playing a uh, jazz, uh, the group I was playing with, uh, we, we played basically R and B. Basically, you know, R&B stuff, you know, Aretha Franklin and, you know, Johnny Taylor and, you know, you know, the R&B, you know, R&B stuff. Uh, that particular group, uh, we, weren't, we weren't playing, we weren't playing jazz. We weren't. Um, it wasn't until, uh, I mean, as far as uh, me playing the first, I guess the first, the first real jazz artist that I played with uh and I, I was in my what late, like late teens, um, was uh, Jimmy McGriff. He's the first one, the first jazz, real jazz artist I could say that I, that I played with, uh, and uh, and I loved it, man. I, you know that whole organ trio thing is, you know, you know, is it's off the chain. I mean, I, I you know, I, I loved it. I loved playing the music, you know. 
So how did things progress from there? You, you mentioned McGriff. Uh, what else did you do before you uh, ever found yourself in a studio? Um, well, uh, I got in the studio at an early, at, 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 you know, at, at an early age. Now, um, uh, I guess most of the things after, you know, after that were like, uh, you know, studio, studio, well, studio stuff with, with various, with different R&B bands. Cause you know, the bands at that time, that's basically what they were doing. And what I was doing was, you know, R&B stuff at the, you know, at the studio. Uh, and of course, when I, you know, when I got into college, when I got out of high school, you know, like when I was 18, 18, 19, I went to college, I went to Jersey City State College. It's called New Jersey City University now. But, um, you know, I was a music major there. And, um, you know, I was in a jazz band. And, uh, and, and that's the first time that I went to, well, the first time I was in Europe, because the jazz band went to Europe uh, to, for, for a week to play, you know, some, some jazz, some jazz clubs there. Um, uh, and I mean, you know, my, you know, my whole, you know, I, it was there that I learned about, about arranging, about orchestration and the music theory. Um, I mean, and I, I kind of had a leg up because I could always, I, I could always already improvise, but, you know, I didn't know how to improvise over chord changes. Like if I saw chord changes, I didn't know how to do that. Um, but being, you know, once I got into college and I, you know, I learned, you know, what, what a C minor seventh was and all of that. And I could, you know, I mean, like I said, I could already improvise, you know, so my ears were, you know, I mean, if I heard a C minor seventh, if I heard it, I could, I could play over it. You know, I just didn't, if I saw, but if I saw the chord symbol, I just didn't know, I didn't know what it meant. I just didn't, the only thing I would get out of the chord symbol was C. That was it. I didn't know what the seventh meant. I didn't know what the minor meant. I didn't, you know, but I just knew what I heard, you know what I mean? So, um, but going to college taught me, you know, taught me, you know, taught me all that. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, once I, once I got out of college, um, oh, but, well, um, yeah, I wanted to mention uh, at Jersey City State, Bill Watchers, the trombone player. He he did several several concerts with us, you know, at the, with the college band. And um, I had done this. I, there was a song where I had this solo, this long like long solo, marathons like Paul Gonzalez type solo, you know, and it was long. And um, uh, and uh, Bill Watchers. He uh, he took notice of that, you know, the fact that I was doing this solo and I wasn't playing, you know, I didn't play the same thing twice, you know, so I was being I, I was being he liked my creativity, you know, um, and so he asked me about, you know, about playing in his band and, you know, well, it was good. The Manhattan Wildlife Refuge with uh, Danny Styles, the trumpet player that he had the partnership and. Um, and so, you know, the, the band director, the, the jazz band director, Dick Lowenthal, he, he said, well, let him finish school first. Let him finish school first. So, yeah, so, but, but anyway, I, I, did, I did do a couple of gigs with, with his band, though. You know, you know I, was, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't in the band, you know, but I, you know, I did do a couple of things with him. And um, so that, and that, was, that was a really good, that was, the first, that was the first big band that I ever played with. You know, because well, back in eighty, back in eighty five, I, I I was in Lionel Hampton's band back then. But but that, but his was the first big band. You know that that I played. I, I still miss playing big band. I I don't play big band music enough. I mean, I you know I, you know I wish I could play more of it. Uh, but at any rate, um, uh, you know, so my college experiences were, were really good musically because I I I learned you know I. I I learned uh, like so much, uh, you know, and, and I'm glad I I'm glad I did, you know, um, because it helped me once I got out and went to California and started working with, uh, you know, like Patrice Russian and and I, you know, and being a copyist and all that. It, it helped. It helped that. So that's college was a good foundation for that. 
And what was your first studio time and how did that uh, happen? Um, the first uh, studio, let's see. The first studio, actually, uh, first studio thing I did, I mean, aside from little demos that, we, that I did with your band, you know, professional, the first professional studio thing that I did was, uh, was Parliament. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, that was the first professional studio thing that I did. And uh, that was the first time, you know, because I wrote the Horn on, on, on the Funkatelaki album, one with Flashlight. I wrote the Horn Arrangers for Blind Three Mice. For that, for that cut. So here's the visual. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I got to try to line it up because uh, this cuts off half the screen. So I'll put it over my face. Yeah. So here's the back cover. Yeah. And my name is on the back of you, but you saw my name on it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's um, right up there with their best albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, with that album, uh, uh. Well, first of all, well, I, I just, just just to finish my other thought was that that uh, I wrote the Horn Arrangement for Blind Three Mice, and that was the first Horn Arrangement that I ever wrote. Was that was that Horn Arrangement? You know, because you know George wanted to to go with the song. He wanted like a cartoonish, like kind of a cartoonish kind of a Horn Arrangement. So you know, I threw in I threw in like uh, like sort of horn parodies of of uh, of like you know the Bugs Bunny cartoons. And you know, like that, that kind of thing. Uh, and um, but uh, with that album, that would that album was a, a turning point for P Funk as far as the kind of the kind of funk that they were going to be doing from then on. You're right. Um, and uh, it's and it's unfortunate that you know, especially Glenn had passed away. You know, at that you know. You know, well, we had left. You know, and, and uh, it, because you know that that kind of um, the I, I think that the 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 whole, the whole funk thing that they started with, like tear the roof off the sucker and all that stuff. I think that that whole thing uh, that the funk would still be there, but I think that musically, I think that the band was about at that time was about to expand. You know, because I mean, I you know stuff that I heard stuff that I heard. That was that they were uh, that that Bootsy was doing that Bootsy was writing and Glenn himself was writing and that Bernie was doing the, the stuff that they had that they were thinking about using or thinking about putting on the next album was um, you know was really I mean it was really different I mean it, it was funky yeah but it was like it was just more it was just more musical it was you know it had more you know, more, um, more, mu more musical changes, uh, more, uh, more vocal, more, uh, things vocally that they were going to do, you know, I, and, and it's just that, you know, you know, because of the money issue at the time and, you know, you know, we left, you know, me and Glenn, you know, me and the horn section and Glenn and, and Jerome, you know, it was, you know, it, it was, it was unfortunate because I, I would have liked to have, I would have liked to see where it was going to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me let me just uh, interject there, because first of all, the horn arrangement on that track, um, which is actually um, ended up being called "Sir Knows Devoid of Funk." Right. Yeah, um, that's well. It's always my second favorite track after "Flashlight" on the record. Uh, okay. It's just so much fun to listen to in the arrangements, and it just takes you to places and. Yeah, yeah. It's funny yeah. and musically, it's just, you know, really taking you on a journey. Mm -hmm. um, so, Matt, kudos on that. Thanks. Um, Thanks. But how did you get with Parliament? What was... Okay, well, well, what happened was uh, uh, a year, a year prior, um, uh, me and a, a Trom the, the, the trombone player that actually was doing the gig doing the P funk with me, a guy named Clay uh, Clay Lowry. We um, we he he lived in Newark, and we we played in a lot of the same bands together, and we knew each other, right? And so we um, uh, we both liked Parliament, right? And uh, you know we had we between the two of us, we we since we played together a lot, we had a lot of licks 
that we played together, you know, a lot of jazz and funk licks that we that we did because we played together all the time and, and all. So uh, we said since we we wanted to get with Parliament, right? So what we what we did was they had a concert at uh, Livingston College here in New Jersey. So Clarence and I we kind of crashed the gig, right? So basically we took our instruments and you know we got there we waited for the band to get to, to arrive there for like sound check and whatnot right so and we just walked in with them with our instruments nobody stopped us because they just figured that we were <laughs> that we were with the band right so we walked in there with our instruments and we just hung around and we we, we were looking because we, we wanted to see fred we wanted to meet fred and so we just hung out you know, as and then you know, everybody everybody slowly came in. You know, Bernie and all these guys they came in. You know, but we were looking for Fred. So, Fred, when Fred walked in, we we said, you know, Fred, you know, you we introduced ourselves and and we just told him, listen, we want to be heard. Okay. So he said, okay. Um, he said, I tell you what. He said, after the show, come to the, come backstage here to the dressing room. I said, okay. And so, you know, we saw, we saw the show and all that. After the show, we came, you know, we, we waited outside and Fred, you know, motioned for us, you know, come inside. We came inside. And uh, so he, you know, he sat down on a bench. And so he said, all right, well, play, you know, play something. So me and Clarence, we got our, got our instruments. And like I said, we knew a lot of licks, a lot of things that we played together. You know, we were like, you know, like the like the the Brecker brothers of uh, of of Newark. You know what I mean. So anyway, so we started playing these different licks and stuff. You know, and um, and and Fred said, "Yeah, y'all sound good. Y'all sound good." You know, uh, so he gave us the information. He said, "I'll I'll keep in touch." Right. So we didn't hear from Fred for you know for a year, and 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 you know and we were you know we were both in college. So, like I said, we when I went to L.A., right? We both went to, me and Clowns, we both went to L.A. at the same time. And then uh, Fred was living in L.A. at that time. So, when we got to L.A., one of the first things we did was contact Fred, you know? And, um, yeah, Fred, uh, we're such a, yeah, we're, you know, you remember we the two guys that you saw at Livingston College in New Jersey? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I remember, I remember, I remember. And so, you know, we, you know, we talked and then about, then about two weeks later, Fred called me up because uh, he wanted me to play. He said that, he said, George, I said, I told, I told George about you and all of that. He wants you to do the sax solo on, um, man, I forgot the name of the tune, but it was, it was on the uh, trombipulation, trombipulation. Well, that came later. So they held it until then. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, George was always recording stuff, and 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 he also had. And while I was there, I I recorded a, a solo for that, and and I recorded a, a solo for one of the Brides of Funkenstein tunes, oh, right? Okay. That ended up on the Brides of Funkenstein tunes. I mean, George had a whole lot of a lot of songs. At any rate, um, so so I did that right, and then and uh, maybe. Maybe like a couple of months, maybe four, maybe four months. Then about four months later, Fred calls up and says that, uh, well, you know, you know, Bootsy's opening shows for, for you know, for, for P Funk, but Bootsy's going to be open, have his own, is going to be headlining shows on his own, and uh, you know, me and Maceo, you know, and and Rick and and Kush, you know, we're going, you know, we're going to be playing with Bootsy. George needs a horn section. So you guys interested? So yeah, yeah. So so yeah, and and it's and it's funny because we we were both we were both we had both signed up for for classes at at Pepperdine University in Malibu, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and we could at the because the the band director there had you know was go, was basically kind of recruited us to help his jazz band out, right, and uh, and so. So unfortunately, you know, we, we said, well, we needed we needed money, you know. So we said, yeah. So we decided to go with George. Now the band director at Pepperdine, he he wasn't happy about it, because <laughs> you know, because 
you know, we were supposed to do things with him, but you know, what can I tell you? But that's how I, that's how we got that's how I got involved with with uh, with P Funk was you know through Fred, you know, you know, I mean, and and Fred, I mean, he's a you know, I mean, I know Maceo too, but uh, I don't have the relationship with Maceo that I have with Fred. You know, Fred is Fred is you know Fred is a little more open than Maceo is. And he and you know I mean we we just sort of clicked you know and I mean I still you know I still keep in touch with Fred you know we uh, we've done um, you know we've done we did a project together well a couple of years ago we did a project with, uh, uh, with you know my horn section and Fred and Bernie Worrell and this is before Bernie passed and Dennis Chambers we did a project uh, called Chops and Soul we did a project together but. You know, I still keep in touch with Fred, you know. I still keep in touch with him. You know, I mean, you know, we, we've been friends for a long time. That's how I got hooked up. That's how I got hooked up with Paul. Well, you had a lot of persistence that paid off. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. And that's what I always tell people, you know. You know, I keep, you know the longer you do it, then the, the, the more you, the odds will be in your favor. The longer you keep, the longer you keep at it, you know. It's funny because I think. After Parliament Funkadelic got big, I think probably the majority of musicians that came later were guys that kind of did it like you. You know, they were fans and they showed up and they wanted to be part of the funk mob. And yeah. George or Fred or whoever, if there was an opening and you could hold your own, you might yeah. get a shot. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I mean, look, I mean, there were there were problems with with the with, you know with the P Funk situation and. And all that. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, George, you know, I mean, he still owes me money, but I don't. I'm, I, but I forgive him. I don't. I don't have any. I don't harbor any ill will or anything like that. I mean, I I understand what the you know what this you know what the situation. Now, I mean, look, I mean, George got ripped off too. He did. He got ripped. He trusted a lot of the wrong people. He did. You know. Uh, but I think where George went wrong is that as the leader of this of the situation. I think that he had he had an obligation to make sure that you know that his people were paid right and treated right. Uh, but you know George was at the time he was he was he was into the lifestyle into the lifestyle of it and he he did the drugs you know just like a lot of people and he wasn't as on it as he should as he should have been. Uh, but you know I mean but but like I said I don't I don't harbor any ill will you know which, I mean in two thousand five. Um, you know the other the, the Dave Dave Watson who was who was my partner in the horn section. Uh, you know we did uh, when George had his fiftieth fiftieth anniversary tour. You know and um, Dave you know Dave and I played on that tour, um, and not as part of P Funk though it was part of uh, it was a group uh, it was one of George's throw off groups called Children of Production, mm-hmm. and we we played with we played with that group. And, um, you know, and, and I mean, that's the, and that, that's the first time that, I, that I've seen or and I had seen or talked to George in, in a long time. But, you know, like I said, I, I don't have any I don't have any ill will or anything with George. I, you know, I mean, like I said, I forgive. Him. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that, that haven't forgiven him, that won't, you know, won't forgive him. But I have because, I, first of all, I don't, I'm not a person that holds grudges anyway. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, I, I just, you know, I mean, I. I understand what the, you know, what the situation was like and, and, and all of that. And, you know, I, uh, I mean, I, and, and, and the bottom line is that my experience with P funk when I was in it, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. I might not have been getting the right money, but I mean, I loved it. And I grew, I grew from that experience. You know, I learned a lot, you know, I learned a lot, you know, from, from George and, and, and the other musicians, you know that we're in, you know Bernie and 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 uh, and 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 Glenn and you know I mean you know I mean I and I continued with Glenn with Quasar you know working with Glenn with Quasar and all and and uh, you know we were both the same age you know I mean and when he you know and he, when he died I, he died at 24 years old and I was 24 too and it was like you know just goes to show you man he you know he. he at any time, anything could happen to you at any time. It was like, yeah, no, that's just horrendous. Um, I want to yeah. talk to you a little more about Quasar, but be, uh, a couple more things before we leave Parliament. Okay. Um, 
what was it like being on stage as part of the? I mean, that was when they land. You were there when they landed the mothership, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So what? Yeah, it, it was, it was, it, it was very climactic. You know, one because the thing that, I mean, you know, the, the whole show was really, really fun. You know, really fun to do. I mean, when you're in an arena of like twenty thousand people, and you know, they're all, you know. You know, because it, it was very, it was very underground. It was very underground uh, thing. You know, the whole funk thing and and the people very underground. People came to the concerts. You know, dressed in wild costumes and in makeup and all that stuff. And it was it it, it it was really fun to watch. And the really climactic thing and the the thing that I really liked about the whole night, like after of the show, was you know when Glenn calls the mothership, and you know and he, and he never did it the same way twice. You know. And it always it, it always gave you goosebumps, you know, to, to hear him, you know, you know, when he's calling the mothership and and then the mothership come down and, and then you, you got the well, for one thing, the dry ice was very refreshing after being up in a hot <laughs> stage. Right. <laughs> you know, that it was very refreshing. But, you know, it was, um, you know, the whole at, at that point, which was like the, the highlight of the show. At that point, man, the, the 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 vibe in the audience it was it was so, I mean, it was so electric. Now, like I said, I didn't I didn't do any drugs or anything, but that's the part that made me hot. <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, it was it was it was a re, it was a real high. You know, I mean, it was a uh, because you know, I mean, it's something that uh, something that that was that was different from. Uh, I mean, other bands would you know did pyrotechnics and all that stuff and all that, but but there was you know I mean something about that particular you know, that particular thing and that being part of it and at that part of the show was, um, you know, it was really, you know, it was really, you know, really, really out of this world, you know, and, and, you know, people would think that that would, that the mothership coming down was the, you know, then, and a lot of people thought that, well, that's the end of the show, but it's not because then, you know, George would come down and then Dr. Funkenstein would start, then we start the tune. And then it was like, you know, by that time, <laughs> yeah, by that time, every, everybody was, I mean, the, the, it was a, fr the place was like frenetic. It was frenzy at that, at that time. It was, it was you know, uh, but that was, I mean, it was really, I mean, it, it was really something. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the first, that's the first stage experience, you know, I mean, I mean, where that, you know, that, that I had as far as being in front of an audience uh and and the electricity being that way you know i mean prior to that i mean i had played in local in, in you know local funk bands or whatever you know but you know that you know that situation being you know that was, that was the first the first big stage thing that i you know that i ever experienced and it was it was a, it was a hell of an experience and, and who are the other horn players well it was uh my my friend clay lowry who i went to california out to california with uh, his girlfriend Valerie Drayton was playing uh, was playing a second trumpet, and um, Danny Cortez he was playing first trumpet. You know, so and um, you know, and Danny and Danny was uh, you know we got Danny from because Danny was a L, lived in L.A. and he was um, he was Quincy Jones' lead trumpet player in his band. You know, Danny was you know really really good player. You know. Um, but anyway, those those are the other those are the other three it was Valerie and Clay and uh, and Danny. Yep. And what was it? I mean, that uh, aggregation was full of you know several guys who, in their own right, were like incredible uh, um, you know, virtuosos on their instruments, yeah. or in incredibly charismatic. You know, what was it like uh, meeting or hanging with uh, guys like Bernie Worrell, um, Bootsy, um, Gary Scheider? Mm -hmm. um you know michael hampton um you know the list goes on and on um yeah. but what was it like with those guys and are there a couple that really stood out to you for a particular reason well um well okay mike Ham mike hampton stood out to me uh uh well one, one, well one of the reasons he stood out to me was that he was he was very young uh and you know, see, you know, as we call him, Kid Funkadelic. He was like really, really young, and he was um, for his age. He was a guitar virtuoso. He was. I mean, you know, he. I mean, he could hold his own on stage with any of the, you know, 
any of the the, the leading leading uh, leading lead guitarists that you you know that you hear out there, you know, uh, and and uh, he 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 practiced. He he was the, he was the, he was the only he was the only uh, uh, guy in the band that practiced regularly. You know, he, he yeah he was you know he was really he really into it. He practiced regularly, uh, and he he stood out with his musicianship. You know, to me. Because he he was the first real guitar virtuoso that I that I met that I met, you know. I mean the other guy Bernie, Bernie was um, he's he, I mean his personality, you know he's he, he's wild personality, but he was he was such a sweetheart he he could never tell anyone no about anything. He he was he was, you know he was just like that. He he you know anything anything you needed wanted he was he was just one of those one of those kind of guys. And you know he was, and you know he he was a virtuoso too. He was, you know, New England Conservatory. He graduated when he was ten years old. He was playing playing piano sonatas with major symphonies. You know, I mean, you know, and you know the, the guy. You know, I mean, the guy was phenomenal, man. And uh, you know, uh, Glenn Glenn was a triple threat because he was a great singer, a great player, and a great songwriter. And he, plus, he played on uh, he played on several uh, jingles. Uh, for Cheerios, um, other, you know, other things, and and that that impressed me because you know I mean I hadn't I hadn't played on any jingles, and, you know, and here you know here's a guy who uh, is my age that is a good songwriter, singer, player, you know, you know plays you know plays in the studio on you know jingles and stuff, and you know he's already doing stuff that I want to do, you know, <laughs> and that. that he impressed me like that, um, you know. I mean, Jerome. Um, Jerome. I mean, aside from, I mean, he's he's got he's got to be one of the best funk drummers, period. You know. I mean, I have to admit, I haven't I I I haven't heard him play like other things, so I don't know how, you know. I mean, how 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 wide his musicianship is, because you know, the funk thing is all I heard him playing, but. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I had never at that time I had never played with it with a drummer with any drummer like him doing the things they doing the things that that he did for Parliament. He was he was the perfect he was the perfect fit, you know. And uh, you know, and Gary, you know, Gary Scheider, he um, while he doesn't have while he didn't have he could sing he didn't have the pipes that Glenn had, but uh, but he had everything else. You know he, you know he had everything else, and and uh, you know he was um, everybody in that band. You know, and you know Boogie Masson, everybody they 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 fit like a glove. I mean, for to have three, because I, I remember the first rehearsal. The first rehearsal was in the hotel room in Detroit, and you know, I mean, Jerome was banging on on radi on the radiators and the radiator covers, the drums, <laughs> and and everybody was there. Everybody had to like pig nose amps, and um, and that, for, to have three guitars and a keyboard player playing the things that they did, and the first tune we practiced was Doctor Funkenstein, and that that was when you know I played with a lot of funk bands, but them when they hit that tune, you know that now now the tempo of that tune is slow and laid back, but they made but it was so intense the way that they played it. You know, a lot of musicians seem to think that in order to play to play with intensity, you got to play loud, but that's not the case. You know, you can play with intensity and be soft. You you can, and 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 they did. I mean, and when they played that tune and they started that tune, that's when I said to myself, "Now, see, now, now I understand what they mean when they say something's on the one." You know, because they had they had the knack. You know, they had the knack to wait for that, to, to wait for that one, that split second before the, that split second before the downbeat. They wait just a split second before the downbeat, and waiting that split second, when it when it hits, by waiting that split second, that's when it that's when it that's when it hits you. It hits you harder that way. You know, it's not it's not it's not directly on the beat. It's just a split second, split second before it, and it's it, you know and it's, and you know I really believe that it's really Holy psychological. It's really holy psychological. The way that they, the way that they played it, when they played it, 
I understood what 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 you know what what they meant, I, and I could hear the difference between the way that they played it and the way other bands play a downbeat, you know, and um, you know, I mean, and that, that was all very musically interest, very musically interesting to me, you know, and it was, you know, and that that's the thing that that really impressed me about 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 them as a band, you know, um, you know, it's uh, what can I say? Wow. That is some great detail, Daryl. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, man, would I love to have been in that room, you know, uh, and, and heard yeah, him yeah, in that, it was, that yeah. context. Yeah, it was uh, it was very eye-opening, very, very eye-opening for me. And, uh, you know.